Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name is Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? I am a fat little piggy, (laughs) and I mean that with like a ton of endearment. Um, This weekend was Canadian Thanksgiving. Yes. So I'm chock full of turkey and dressing and... Yeah, we had a very good Thanksgiving. Yeah, we had my parents over for dinner and we made them the turkey recipe that's in the Dungeons and Dragons cookbook, Heroes Feast. The Homlet Golden Roasted Turkey, I think is what it's called. Basically, it's a recipe that's going to get you some really good dressing, some really good gravy, and then a big giant medieval fantasy tavern style turkey leg yeah that you can eat like your uh charles lawton playing henry the (laughs) eighth and then for dessert um i made a recipe from the redwall cookbook because we're all just a bunch of nerds here Mm -hmm. um and it was the golden hill pears but i substituted apples for pears uh, as uh, Ben isn't a huge fan of pears. Yeah, not so, a big fan. But it was still like amazing and delicious. It was basically poached apples. And um, yeah, so very full and very excited for this movie. Mm. Well, I wanted to ask you, Sarah, before oh. we get into it, um, what are you thankful for this year? Oh, um, well, honestly, this has been the best year of the podcast so far. By what metric? In terms of how many downloads we've gotten, um, the level of engagement we're getting with folks, um, as well as down to just brass tacks numbers uh, for our Patreon. Um, We're now able to do the monthly bonus episodes. So uh, I'm very thankful for our listeners, our creatures of the night, as we love to call you, um, our patrons of the night. It's just really nice, you know, knowing that people are out there listening. It's not just, you know, I love you and I love talking with you, Ben, but uh, it, it, it is nice to know that people actually enjoy listening to us talk. Absolutely. Yeah, I am very thankful for our listeners and I'm very thankful for when listeners tell us, you know, how much they enjoy the show. I love hearing what you guys like about the show you know, what your favorite bits are being told that we should watch this movie or it was a mistake to skip that movie. (laughs) Um, You know, you guys have gotten really into voting on the Patreon for the horror adjacent movies. That's always been really fun to watch and see who wins, who loses. Yeah. Who goes home crying for October. It is official that it's going to be the 1991 The Adams Family. Mm, that's going to be a lot of fun yes. to watch and to talk about. There's a lot to talk about with regards to The Adams Family. And I'm just excited to be able to talk about Angelica Houston. <laughs> yeah, so we're just very thankful for all of you and we're thankful for your support helping the show become what it is. And I hope that we continue to find wonderful new listeners and i hope that all of our current listeners are 
doing well and are safe and are supported and enjoying the show Mm -hmm. um, because you all mean a lot to us. Yeah. Um, Even if you do not celebrate Canadian Thanksgiving, Hmm. uh, this is your permission to go out and get a nice little treat for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Um, We're very thankful for all of you. So what are we treating our listeners to this week, Ben? Ah, well, Sarah, this week we are watching I Was a Teenage Frankenstein uh, from 1957 from AIP. Amazing. Teens. I love it. Sorry. (laughs) So as you might guess, if you've been listening to the show lately, this movie resulted from the phenomenal success of I Was a Teenage Werewolf and the fact that after that success, it was really only natural that AIP would seek to capitalize with similar product. If you haven't been listening to the show lately, um, you might not know the story and the legacy of I Was a Teenage Werewolf. So Sarah, do you want to recap? Absolutely. If you want to just go listen back, we covered I Was a Teenage Werewolf on episode 213, and it is currently ranked at number 45. It's pretty good. That's pretty dang good. We've got like over 200 movies on the list now, right? Yeah, yeah, pretty dang good. It's claim to fame, beyond being a bit of a cult movie, is that it's like the first horror movie about teens from a teen perspective, and just really focusing and celebrating teen culture. We've had teens on other movies in the past, uh, making out in cars before being threatened by the monster that's coming out. But uh, this was like the first time that I was like, nah, here's teens. Now in that episode, I do kind of explain the rise of the teen, why we have teens now, like what, what's the deal with teens? Um, but to kind of sum up, it's a mix of post-World War II there being kind of a shift towards compulsory education. So you have people around the same age group being kind of cloistered together for a long period of time. Um, You're no longer having to, like, balance kids on the farm doing farm work and then going to school in their off time. It's like, no, school is the main place to be. So it allows for that kind of specific teen culture to develop. And then the probably biggest contributor to the rise of the teen is the 1950s economic boom, both for parents now having a ton of extra money for their own, like for the family, and then teens going out and getting jobs and having the money from those jobs being for the teen and not just contributing to the household itself. Um, So now they have a ton of extra spending money that they can just put on whatever they want. So they could be spending money on cars, on going to dance clubs, uh, going to the movies, Mm -hmm. etc. As far as I Was a Teenage Werewolf goes, uh, it is a werewolf movie. It's kind of the standard plot that we've seen where someone goes to see a hypnotherapist and things go wrong from there. Yeah, horror movies in the 1950s want you to know that you shouldn't trust hypnosis (laughs) specifically yeah so there's a problem teen his name is tony and you know he's a teenage delinquent uh so he it gets sent to 
a hypnotherapist named Dr. Brandon. Um, and Dr. Brandon is not on the up and up. Uh, and he experiments on Tony to make him into a werewolf. Using that Bridie Murphy thing about hypnotherapy going to past lives for Tony to go back to when like he was an animal. And then that turns into like canthropy. Um, yeah, the, the science in this one is not, it's nothing. <laughs> it's nothing. But that's kind of the premise. He goes and he does attack teens um, in some cases random, in other cases because he gets really turned on. And kind of the other claim to fame with Teenage Werewolf is that teen culture is really featured prominently with rock and roll, singing, dancing, cars, dating, and then, of course, the teenage delinquency. And what was notable to me about this was we've seen kind of outside of the podcast, really, some of these teen delinquency movies, but they've always been in the point of view of the parents being like, oh, no, Billy, what are you doing? But with Teenage Werewolf and, you know, as we're moving into the rise of the teenager, the teen delinquency is from the point of view of the teens. Um, so Rebel Without a Cause is a great example of that. So that's that's kind of the where we're at with teens and why teens so I was a teenage werewolf cost about a hundred thousand and it made two million dollars. So it was a huge hit. So um, I'm not surprised that less than a year later we have I was a teenage Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I was a teenage werewolf kind of became like a big pop culture moment. I mean, also with that title. Yeah, yeah. The title's kind of laughable. Yeah. And the title sort of became like a running gag mm -hmm. in pop culture, you know, that stand up comedians would make fun of or like sitcoms would satirize and all of that kind of thing. And surely this wasn't helped by the fact that, like, you know, the follow up movie is I was a teenage Frankenstein because it just plays into that I was a teenage blank mm -hmm. joke structure. And as we talk about in the episode on Werewolf, like that kind of title is also riffing off of the um, confessional stories and novels, um, which we kind of briefly talked about when we covered I Walked with a Zombie back in the 40s. Yeah, it, it was like a standard title structure for like articles in magazines kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, but it's definitely laughable in this sense. Yes. So early in the summer of 1957, a theater chain uh, advised AIP, that is American International Pictures, that they had open dates for around Thanksgiving for a double bill. Thematic. Well, American Thanksgiving. Well, it's still Thanksgiving. So um, the bright executives at AIP brainstormed some titles that they could, you know, then hand to the marketing department to have some posters made that could then be handed to some writers and producers to make a movie out of and came up with I Was a Teenage Frankenstein and Blood of Dracula, both of which repeat the central concept of a teenage monster. Herman Cohen and Aben Candle, who'd written I Was a Teenage Werewolf under the alias of Ralph Thornton, uh, would both write I Was a Teenage Frankenstein under the name of Kenneth Langtree, and also they would write Blood of Dracula as Ralph Thornton again. Kenneth Langtree does sound like a real name. Yes. Yeah, so good, good choice there, guys. Cohen would produce both of these films as he had 
I Was a Teenage Werewolf. The director who was brought on was Herbert L. Strock, who was born in Boston in 1918. He moved to L.A. at age 13, and at age 17 began directing the Hollywood gossip segments for Fox Movie Tone News. Okay. So these would have been like the 1930s equivalent of like Entertainment Tonight kind of, <laughs> or like extra on the old newsreels. In World War II, he shot training films for the Army. And after that, he worked in editing for some time. Uh, for example, he was the editor of Donovan's Brain. Oh, okay. Um, in the 1950s, he became a pioneering director of early television on shows like The Cases of Eddie Drake. His first work on a feature film was as a director of the sci-fi film The Magnetic Monster, uh, where he was called in to finish the movie um, after its initial director, Kurt Siedmack, uh, left the project. Okay. I Was a Teenage Frankenstein would be his fifth feature film, and Blood of Dracula would be his sixth, <laughs> because he directed both movies in this double bill. Kind um, of back to back, or? Yes. Okay. Um, and he would work regularly in the film industry until he passed away in 2005 in a car accident at age 87. Wow. The film stars Whit Bissell as Professor Frankenstein. He had previously played Dr. Brandon, the mad scientist in I Was a Teenage Werewolf. Yeah, who uh, dies at the end. Right. So I guess that's why he couldn't continue playing that doctor. But like is basically the same character archetype here so we're we're hewing close to the source yeah and we've also seen him before in creature from the black lagoon and invasion of the body snatchers if he's dr frankenstein wouldn't he have been 18 frankenstein i mean when he was a teenager he would have been but the teenage frankenstein of the title is perhaps more accurately understood as a teenage frankenstein's monster okay I was definitely imagining like a teen doctor. Ah, like a Victor Frankenstein who's going to the drive-in and yeah. look, picking up girls. No, no, no. The monster's the teen. <laughs> so this is uh, a case of people forgetting that Frankenstein is not the name of the monster. Yeah. By this point, we're firmly into people, you know, calling the monster Frankenstein for okay. sure. Okay. Phyllis Coates plays Frankenstein's secretary, Margaret. She was born Gypsy Ann Everts Stell in 1927 in Texas, and she got her start in showbiz when she moved to L.A. as a teen and began appearing in vaudeville variety shows as a dancer and comedian uh, under the name Gypsy Stells. Um, but after a few years of doing that, she won a contract at Warner Brothers in 1948 as Phyllis Coates. Well, at least she changed her name. <laughs> yeah. Uh, she did TV. She did serials. She did B-movies. Uh, she was actually one of the most consistently employed actresses in Hollywood in the 50s and 60s, even if, like, the parts weren't always large. Yeah, but... She just was always working. Simple paycheck is, mm -hmm. is good. Yeah, she's in it for the work. Uh, in 1951... She was cast as Lois Lane on the Adventures of Superman television series opposite George Reeves. However, 
She was replaced by Noel Neal, who had played the character in the previous serials after the first season. Mm. In 1994, she would play Lois Lane's mother on the TV series Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman. Today, she is 94 years old. Still around. Yes. Good for her. She is the last surviving cast member of Adventures of Superman, if I am remembering correctly. Gary Conway, who is 21 years old when he appeared in this movie. Is he related to Jerry Conway? No, but yeah, my brain definitely made that connection right away too. Or what about Tom Conway? No. Okay. No. Because Jerry Conway's in comics That's and right. Tom Conway's the actor, yes, right? Yes, you've okay. got it. Yeah. No, um, Gary Conway was age 21 when he appeared in this film. He plays our teenage Frankenstein. And he would later headline the cult TV series Land of the Giants from 1968 to 1970. So is he very tall or? No, no, he wasn't a giant in Land of the Giants. Okay. Um, Land of the Giants was a show where a spaceship full of astronauts crash landed on an alien world made up of giants. Okay. Yeah. Today, Gary Conway is 85 years old. So these two films, I Was a Teenage Frankenstein and Blood of Dracula, were written and shot in four weeks. So like basically two weeks to write and shoot each movie. Yeah. And they had paltry budgets. Yeah. Uh, $90,000 for the two of them. Each? No, for the two of them. So, so they each cost like, 45 Yeah, about. Yeah. Which is putting us in like sub Roger Corman territory for money. Wow. Oof. They, they're just trying to cash in. Yes, absolutely. Not even hiding it. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, these were shot quickly and cheaply. So, like, Herbert L. Strzok shot both of them because they, they took, like, two weeks to shoot. Yeah. This film uh, does have a rather unique element to it, though, which is that it is black and white, save for the final reel, which is in color. Oh, interesting. Do you know why they decided to do that last reel in color? Yes, I do, but I don't want to spoil it. Oh, okay, cool. So we'll talk about it after the break. Yes. The Double Bill debuted on November 23rd, 1957, in time for Thanksgiving, and made $310,000. So definitely over triple its budget. I can't do the math in my head, but like... Yeah, a little over triple. Um, so a big return on investment, but nowhere near Teenage Werewolf's $2 million. Yeah. Um, I Was a Teenage Frankenstein received poor reviews. <laughs> and it has not been seen on home video since its VHS release in the 1990s. Oh, dear. Now, the reason for that is something that I've sort of alluded to in past episodes, um, kind of like briefly addressed um a lot of times after the fact because uh various listeners have like brought it up to me um and i've never really taken the time to explain it properly um so i'll, I'll take that opportunity here so while the majority of aip's library is now owned by amazon james h nicholson who was the co-founder of aip along with samuel z arkoff uh his wife Susan Hart, uh, who he married in 1964 after she appeared in AIP's film Pajama Party, uh, she claims the rights to 11 AIP films. So due to these disputed rights, um, these different rights claims on these movies, 
these particular films are unavailable on home video legally. Uh, these are It Conquered the World, Zontar, The Thing from Venus, Invasion of the Saucer Men, The Eye Creatures, I Was a Teenage Werewolf, I Was a Teenage Frankenstein, The Amazing Colossal Man, Terror from the Year 5000, Apache Woman, The Oklahoma Woman, and Naked Paradise. So she married the dude in the 60s. Yes. How can she have a claim? Or does she mean on behalf of the dude's estate to have a claim on these movies? Yeah, so as the the beneficiary of his will, she inherits his estate, and his estate claims ownership over these films. Ergo, she claims ownership over these films. And so uh, it's, it's sort of questionable whether that rights claim is is valid or not but but no one's going to spend the money to investigate that yeah like at the end of the day i don't think amazon is super into like bothering about acquiring 11 1950s drive-in movies yeah they're too busy sending rich guys into space breaking union laws yes exactly (laughs) Um, Which, for the record, we haven't said anything, but we definitely support IATSE and any and all of their actions. Yes, yes. Uh, big supporters of the film industry unions here. So, yeah. So for this reason, you know, movies like I Was a Teenage Werewolf, you can't find. This movie, you can't find. As I said, the last time it was released on home video was in the 90s. Mm-hmm. It shows up on TV every now and again, like TCM has shown it. There are two versions of this film in circulation. Okay. There's the original American version, I Was a Teenage Frankenstein, which runs 74 minutes long. Then there is the British version, uh, released in the UK by Anglo Amalgamated, uh, that is just called Teenage Frankenstein. Um, Similarly, I Was a Teenage Werewolf was just called Teenage Werewolf in the UK. Sure. They don't really have that same, like, confessional title Mm -hmm. tradition, so... Anyways, Teenage Frankenstein runs 72 minutes as the BBFC cut some stuff out of the movie. British version, oddly enough, is more common to find on home video. But today we will be watching the uncut US version. Uncut, uncensored, full-blown Teenage Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, I'm really looking forward to it. Folks, hopefully you can find a copy to watch along. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss I Was a Teenage Frankenstein from 1957, directed by Herbert Strock. See you on the other side, everybody. Scream scene, everybody. We just finished watching I Was a Teenage Frankenstein from 1957, directed by Herbert Strock. Ben, what did you think? It's okay. Oh, I really liked this. Yeah, it's it's all right. It's fine. It's a good, fun little watch. Yeah. Uh, well, how about I dive in to give the synopsis for everyone? For sure. I think the story will sound very familiar. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
A Professor Frankenstein is giving a guest lecture in the States. He is, well, he says uh, that he's come from England, um, but there's also like implied that he's from Germany, um, but he doesn't have an accent at all. So he's just from, you know, Europe. He wants to head back to England after his guest lecture tour is done. I think the implication is that the Frankenstein family you know, is, is Germanic, but he's like from England, which not to try to link continuities here or anything is consistent with the fact that like, uh, Wolf von Frankenstein moved to England. Yes. He does mention his, like the legacy to his name and Baron Mm -hmm. Frankenstein and, and everything. Um, but that's about as much in terms of continuity linking we Mm -hmm. get. Uh, especially because this is not a universal film. Right. So um, Professor Frankenstein is here giving his guest lecture and sharing his theories of grafting dead tissue onto live people, basically. And he is kind of mocked at this conference. Now, he does have someone who comes to his defense, a Dr. Carlton, saying like, hey, man, you're being really rude, like heckling this guy at the podium. Now, the reason why Dr. Carlton has come to Frankenstein's defense here is because they've worked together in the past. We don't really get much detail about what that was beyond the description from Frankenstein saying, like, Carlton, I I wouldn't go so far to say that we are accomplices, but we were partners in this. You've been my assistant in the past. Mm. Um, So clearly some like, oh, what have they been up to? But Carlton is brought in again to uh, assist Frankenstein because he wants to prove these theories of, of grafting dead tissue, basically putting together a dead body. The secret, though, is that it's a young body, a teenager. Yeah, you need the young, healthy, accepting body of a teen. Yes. Uh, now, Dr. Carlton's like, I don't know if I'm like the right person to do this because I'm a physicist. <laughs> Which I feel is notable because a lot of these movies tend to be like, he has a doctorate? Cool. He knows all science. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But in this case, Frankenstein goes like, well, you know electricity, and that's what I need. <laughs> you know how to work strict fade and stuff. Yeah. We're good. Yeah. Now, also, while uh, Frankenstein has been uh, here in the States, he has struck up a romance with this nurse named Margaret Now, she works down at the hospital, but, you know, she's attended his lectures and they've developed this romance. And she's kind of sad that he'll be heading back to England. And he's like, well, don't worry. Like, for the last two months of my visa here, I'm going to be staying here working on an experiment with Carlton. And I'd like to have you join in as my secretary to keep people from bugging me. And then afterwards, we'll get married. And she's like, great. Uh, I'll quit my job and move into your house and have no contact with the outside world, what could go wrong? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Now, when Frankenstein and Carlton are talking about, like, these theories and needing a young body, Carlton has a line that's like, but where are we going to find such a body? And then there's a car crash right outside the house. Yes. A uh, head-on collision, both cars just filled to the brim with teens and now filled to the brim with flames. 
Now, an eyewitness does say that the driver of one of the vehicles uh, went through the windshield and is now, like, lying over there. And so, Carlton and Frankenstein grab that body and take it down to the basement, which is basically a morgue slash secret laboratory. They look at the body. They decide, okay, we're going to need to get new hands as well as a new right leg because they've been crushed. Um, There is a line that kind of is a bit of a throwaway that there's a potential for brain damage, but that's not really brought up again. Um, So it it is at least put out there so the sensors won't get too mad. And so they get to work sourcing new hands and a new leg. There's a convenient plane crash full of teens. Just a lot of convenient teen death nearby. Yes. As the movie goes on, it becomes increasingly clear that Margaret is in a bad relationship. Mm. Frankenstein is very controlling, very volatile. She is not allowed to know what the experiment is. Um, and she makes like an offhand kind of like a, like it's meant to be a joke. Like, well, I'm sure like I'll find out somehow. And he like flips his lid, um, and slaps her. So she's like, okay, well now I'm going to fucking find out. Like if you're going to react this way, like what is going on? So she, um, gets a copy of the key made in order to, uh, unlock the basement door. Yeah. She, she lowest lanes her way into the basement she is really, really what does. happens. Except girl, you don't have a Clark or a Superman around. Yeah. Where's George Reeves when you need him? But she snoops around the laboratory and discovers the monster, which has by now been brought back to life. It has like a bandaged up head, um, a teen body, and, like, you can see, like, the scars on his wrists where they've put the hands back on, but clearly, like, not fully human. It's a very muscular teen body. Yes, and they did find the tightest shirt ever made yes. to put on this kid. Yeah. Now, for an audience member, you would know that Frankenstein isn't the best guy, seeing how he interacts with Margaret. Uh, but if that wasn't enough... You also get the feel that he's a bad guy because of the way he interacts with his monster. He's never given a name, so I will just be calling him Monster. They never gave me a name. (laughs) Bad, bad boyfriend and bad father. Yes. So Frankenstein is very strict, uh, very like, I'll say demanding in terms of like, you need to respond to me in this specific way. He gets the monster talking and the monster replies, yes. And Frankenstein's like, well, yes, sir, is kind of what I was looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, and uses like pain through electrical shock to kind of show like I'm in charge. You should be grateful that I'm not hurting you right now. Just a lot of like, whoa, red flags. <laughs> he, has, he has a line to Carlton where he says like, whatever I create, I must control kind of thing Mm -hmm. i got the impression in the movie that he never had any intention of ever marrying margaret like the honest impression i got was he was like i need a secretary and you're a dumb woman who's in love with me so i'll just say i'll marry you and you'll come and be my secretary like it always felt to me like he was using her I think he had the, well, we can get into this in the discussion, Mm. um, but I think he had the intent to marry her, but that he did not love her. He's a very misogynist person Mm -hmm. and definitely, you know, has lines of like, 
women, am I right? Yeah, like, there's a lot of dialogue like that in this movie. Uh, and whenever Margaret's like, well, you know, I, I, I do need a ring. He's like, oh, women and you trinkets. Sure, yeah, we'll get you a trinket. Um, so I felt like he he just wanted her around. I don't know if he actually loved her, but definitely, you know, used marriage as a way to get her to come do things. Um, and I don't think he wasn't ever going to marry her, but it wasn't ever something that he was like, yeah, I'm going to marry the love of my life. Right. I'm super looking forward to being married. Yeah. She even has a line at one point where she says like, I love you. And he replies like, and you know how I feel about you or something like that. Yes. Yeah. So Frankenstein's a bad guy, um, obviously, but the actor does a really good job of like showing, like showing that he doesn't, he's not like twirling a mustache you know he's behaving like he believes that he's doing the right thing like i think he would if he sat frankenstein down and was like do you care about this monster he'd be like of course he's my boy he's going to get me the credit i deserve right that's the kind of way he he treats the monster so the monster's like yeah but like i i don't want to be cooped up in this basement forever like i know i'm ugly no one can stand the side of me but i I don't want to be down here anymore, dad. And Frankenstein's like, well, too bad. And then forgets to close and lock the door. So the monster goes for a midnight stroll and happens upon uh, a girl in a nightie uh, brushing her hair. (laughs) She notices him peering through the window, screams. He breaks in, strangles her. And then he um, barrels his way out of the apartment through... Um, crowds of people so he's been seen with this hideous face um, and makes it back to his house and Frankenstein finds out about this because it's all over the news in the morning yeah the creature like the body they took out of the car accident had you know fucked up hands fucked up leg fucked up face and they replaced the limbs but not the face so yeah he's 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 not a pretty sight no um, almost like reminiscent of the synthetic flesh guy from Dr. X, hmm. the way that he had like excess skin and stuff. He has a one bulging eye that he can't use. And so he can only see out of one eye. Um, but as I said, thanks to the newspaper, Frankenstein finds out and he's like, what have you done? Like, fuck, um, we have to lay low because of what you've done. Meanwhile, Margaret kind of confronts Frankenstein about him having these secrets and says, like, I know what you're working on. I know about the monster in the basement, and I, I want you to trust me with you do- with what you're doing. And he's, like, really mad that she went and did this and basically talks the monster into killing Margaret. Um, he tells the monster that... No, she's going to reveal you to the world. Um, we have to get rid of her to keep you safe so you can get your face and, you know, then you'll be able to go out and see people. But she's standing in the way um, and then sets up a scenario where the creature has an opportunity to kill Margaret. Frankenstein's very good at manipulating. Yeah, at like putting prizes in front of people like, oh, I'll marry you or, oh, I'll give you a handsome face. Now, listener, you might be wondering, with all these excess body parts from all these corpses he's cobbled together, and now with a a dead Margaret to dispose of, like, 
how does Frankenstein dispose of, of body parts and, and evidence? And you might think burial or cremation, but no. <laughs> Alligator. Yeah. Like a, like a 1930s serial villain, he has just some pet a pet alligator in a there's like a metal door in the wall like a garbage chute that you can just toss things into and it ends up in an alligator pit yep that's also how like they got rid of like the amputated hands and, mm-hmm. and all that jazz so it's it's ally the alligator has been well established by this point in the movie right <laughs> so with margaret out of the way by the way carlton's been out for business Mm-hmm. He, he went out to go get some equipment, so he's been gone for a few days. So Frankenstein and his monster go out cruising in the car because they're going to find the monster's new face. And, of course, that's has to be one that he picks out himself. So they go cruising around. They stop by Lover's Lane, and he's like, that one. It's this kid whose name is Bob uh, who is uh, making out with a girl, and the monster attacks. Um, the girl faints, and they just leave her there just fine um but then they take bob and kill him and they get his face yeah, off there's, <laughs> there's a scene where like they have his severed head in like a a little like bird cage, bird cage. <laughs> so they could dramatically take the the cloth off of it yeah so now he has a new face carlton comes back from his business trip to get these things and he's like huh where's uh where's the housekeeper and Frankenstein's like, oh, yeah, she uh, she got another job. In truth, we never see what happens to her. No. Does she die? Does she actually get a new job? Was she just laid off? Who knows? Um, and then Carlton's like, well, uh, what about Margaret? And Frankenstein's like, she disappeared. She she left me. She left me. Women. Even after I got her this engagement ring. <laughs> When really he just gave her a blank check to go pick out her own thing. Yeah. Like, ooh, red flags all up in here. But anyways, um, she left me, women. Uh, and Carlton's like, okay, well, you, you have two days before your visa runs out and you have to go back to England. What are we going to do with the monster? Um, because, like, with this face, like, he's going to be recognized. Yeah, you, you took a local boy's face. face. <laughs> like, what? come on. And Frankenstein's like, ah, see, I put them together, I can take him apart. So I'm going to basically smuggle him into the country piece by piece and then put him back together in England. But he's not going to be super happy about that. So we got to like put him under by saying, okay, we're going to take the stitches out of your face and everything will be fine. And then we'll dismember him and get him ready to ship. The monster goes to the operating table uh, lays down to get the stitches taken out and then starts to become suspicious when Carlton and Frankenstein start to uh, put these shackles on him mm-hmm. to keep him fully restrained. And he's like, no, no, you guys are going to hurt me. He breaks out and in a rage kills Frankenstein and uh, tosses him into the alligator chute. Mm-hmm. While he's doing that, Carlton runs out, grabs the police, comes back and the police are like, Okay, hands up, person. Um, if if you calm down, we can sort this out. Come quietly. And the monster's like, no, and like backs into a corner. And then because of the metal shackles on his wrists, he connects with some electrical equipment and gets electrocuted. 
Now, uh, as Ben said in the context setting, this last bit is in color. So the color kicks in right as the monster is being electrocuted and then continues to the end of the movie where you see the creature fall. Carlton goes and checks on his pulse and yeah, he's dead, um, but I'll never forget his horrible face after the accident. And then we cut to seeing the camera move in on the creature's original, like, messed up face. Yeah, so that we can... Exactly, yeah. And that's the end. Yeah, the the last shot of the movie that the ending credits just, like, run over top of is basically um, the the alligator eating meat in bloody water where there's, like, this, like, professor's robe yeah or lab coat or whatever yeah he's he's basically picking frankenstein out of his teeth so yeah that's the movie yeah i was kind of surprised about this movie um because while it is a wild adaptation of frankenstein slash continuation of frankenstein mm. um the shelly themes of bad parenthood still holds true very much so, so it's kind of a unique semi-faithful adaptation in that way you know it's funny because this was designed as a cash-in on i was a teenage werewolf and i think it's a failure on that regard i I will yeah i will talk a bit more about that later what this movie actually feels most influenced by once you take out the the monsters a teen angle is Hammer's Curse of Frankenstein. That's what I was thinking as well. Yeah, because we've got a version of Frankenstein who's just kind of an asshole all the time to everyone, where, like, everything he says and does is odious and terrible. You've got a reluctant assistant who's like, what you're doing is unethical and immoral, and I won't help you. And then Frankenstein's like, pass me the saw. And he's like, yeah, okay, sure. And just, like, (laughs) keeps helping him the whole movie anyway. And we've got a curious fiancé who you know, breaks in and sees things she's not supposed to see and has to be gotten rid of. Absolutely. The other way that I think this was influenced by Curse of Frankenstein is the amount of gore. Yeah. That's in this. We see the amputated hands, or at least like props of the amputated hands, the amputated right leg, and then of course the colorful gore at the end. Yeah. And like the amputated body parts, because they're like, what was damaged in the accident. They've got like bones sticking up out of them and blood and all this kind of stuff. So yeah, that feels definitely taken from curse of Frankenstein as well. Just being like very explicit with like body parts. Yes. No pools of acid though. (laughs) No, we have an alligator. (laughs) Yeah. Who needs acid when you have an alligator? The alligator honestly is fun, but also like kind of stupid and silly. Like it's very throwback. Like, why does he have an alligator pit? Like, there's just... He explains why, Ben. Mm, but <laughs> the, more, mm, the question is, how does he have an right. alligator pit? Sure. Because he's supposed to be here as a guest lecturer, right? Like, yeah. so how did he set this up? Yeah, like, um, how is I have a secret alligator pit in my basement the less conspicuous method of disposing of bodies, you know? Right. And so you see this alligator like two or three times before you get it with that final shot where he's eating like the professor lab coat. And each time I was like, okay, this is just going to be stock footage. And then you get the very specific shot of him eating the lab coat. I'm like, oh, do they get a real alligator? They must have had an alligator. Huh? Yeah. The story is very predictable. Yes. Um, Every step of the way. 
but there's a lot of good like shocks and scares. There's a lot of good opportunities taken to take very standard horror movie scenes by this point and just kind of like turn them up a little bit by being more explicit. Like the scene where he kills that woman mm-hmm. who's brushing her hair, like we've seen that scene, like that exact scene so many times. Like, oh, a random female character is brushing her hair in front of the mirror and then he's the monster comes to the window and yeah. it's behind her and she looks up and sees him through the window and he smashes in and whatever well we see it in teenage werewolf and it's in like it's it's been in a bunch of movies right we've seen it so many times the thing that i noticed this time is that like this is a a buxom blonde babe <laughs> in like like not like she's in like a like silk lingerie and stuff. Like we've moved past like nightgowns and things. Like we're just mm-hmm. admitting why the scenes are here is what it feels like. You know what I mean? And it also goes another step further with you hearing her gasping breaths. Yes. And as well as when Margaret is killed, you hear her screaming a few times, gasping for breath, screaming more. Like it, it's it lingers longer. Yeah, we don't like see hands around throats or like people's eyes bugging out as they're choked to death kind of stuff. Like it's still 1957, but we do get like ah, 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 kind of noises <laughs> as you. people die. Thank that, you like, for when I'm editing. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, you get those noises when people are dying that we haven't really mm-hmm. gotten that kind of stuff in the past. And the um, movie isn't afraid to show how callous Frankenstein is because no. like, like, we know he's callous because he's set Margaret up and closes the door behind her. But as we're hearing these screams and chokes and screams, he's just standing there lighting his pipe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of good touches here, even if, like, everything here is stuff we've seen before, right? And I think the fact that it's a quick script means that, you know, there are definitely some seams that I noticed it's Mm -hmm. it's not as like tightly written as uh if maybe if they had two weeks instead of one sure um for example the doctor professor who heckles frankenstein he mentions some like a weird line like even my teenage sophomore son would be able to tell that this is bunk to me that seems like are we going to meet this kid? Like, is this teen going to come up? No, he never does. Yeah. There's a lot of like things that don't quite connect. There's a subplot where the police are investigating Frankenstein's murders and stuff. And it's like, Oh, they're on my trail and I got to be careful. But those police don't catch him at the end. Like Carlton doesn't go and get the detectives. He goes and gets like some beat cops. Right. So like that subplot never really goes anywhere. I will say, however, that, at least in terms of the plot, as opposed to like character work or theme work, the script is less nonsensical than Teenage Werewolf. That's also, it's okay, sort of its undoing. Yeah, like when I say less nonsensical, I mostly am talking about like Frankenstein's like method of creating a monster. And <laughs> when I say it's not nonsensical, I mean that only because we've had so many Frankenstein movies that the audience is like, yeah, yeah, dead tissue, sew it back together, electric current, cool, you got a monster. Like, we're, we're kind of used to that. Whereas, yeah, Teenage Werewolf's whole thing of, like, I'm going to hypnotize you into one of your past lives when humans were wolves, and then that's going to physically transform you into a werewolf is, like, that's nonsense. Yeah. 
I agree. I personally was thinking of the way that uh, Teenage Werewolf will have short diversions into, look, teen culture, mm. um, with like pranks and parties and rock and roll. Whereas Frankenstein, I wouldn't even call this so much like a teen trademark movie. Yeah. Um, because we're so focused on these adults. That being said, I think this movie would strike a chord with any teen who has strict disciplinary parents. Sure. Like the thing that Frankenstein doesn't account for is that like, it, you know, in his plans to make a teen monster is that teens are rebellious. Yes. Like this is a guy who's like, I must control the thing I make and then decides to make a teen. Right. Like that's a, that's <laughs> bad call Frankenstein. But yeah. Um, while the monster's a teen, I don't think the POV of this movie's a teen. Like, no. the POV character of this movie is Frankenstein. Like, he's who we're with the whole time. Which does sometimes make the movie a bit of a difficult watch, because even though it's clear he's the bad guy, because he's the character we spend the most time with, and he's the one who gets the most dialogue, we have to kind of suffer through these long stretches of Frankenstein giving speeches about, like, why women and teens are terrible and stupid and dumb. And you know, he kills everyone. So like there isn't a lot of pushback yeah. against those things. Um, we have to kind of assume through context that like these are, that he's wrong about everything that he's saying. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's like, you know, this isn't a pleasant movie. Yeah. Because we don't have the teen POV. Mm -hmm. I think this movie basically loses what made I was a teenage werewolf successful. Because the thing that was unique there wasn't that the monster was a teen. It was that it was a horror movie about teens, like exactly. centered on teens. So with the monster being a teen here, it just feels like a gimmick. Yeah. Because it's it's because the rationale for why the monster has to be a teen is like pretty flimsy. At least it's not so much a gimmick as like, I don't know, House of Wax's 3D where it's like, look in your face. Yeah. Uh, it, this movie doesn't like go like, look, teens in your face. I, I actually kind of like think it's an interesting ch change in terms of adapting a 200 year old story, you know, um, because it still somehow remains faithful to that theme of bad parents. Even yeah. if like the obviously that wasn't like why they decided to go with teen Frankenstein but it's it still manages to do it. So I think it's an interesting thing, even as much as it is still a gimmick. Yeah. As an adaptation of Frankenstein, it's not bad. I think the big thing that lets those Shelley themes come to the fore in a way that they hadn't really come to the fore in previous movies is um, the monster not only gets to talk in this movie, but gets to talk to his creator. Mm -hmm. Because even when Boris Karloff's creature learned to talk, he talked to like a blind man and like Pretorius and like has like kind of a line at the end before he blows up the castle. Um, whereas like all of the monsters conversations in Shelley are like, you know, long philosophical debates with Frankenstein about like whether Frankenstein should have the right to create life. And now that he's created it, whether he has the right to just fucking abandon it and so on and so forth. So those are more similar to what we get here in the conversations between teen Frank and Dr. Frank, uh, in this movie. Yeah. But as a follow up to, I was a teen werewolf. I think this movie falls way short. Absolutely. 
Margaret's great. I really appreciated her Lois Lane stuff. But girl, we got to teach you about red flags. (laughs) Yeah, no, no kidding. Teach you about red flags. Teach you like. Like she had the right impulse of like, wow, he like slapped me over what's in the basement. I better go see what's in the basement. Well, I guess now that I've seen what's in the basement, I'm going to stay and help him. Yeah. Like, like, girl, like we uh, we got to shift this a little bit. Just leave. (laughs) And and now that I've told him, I broke into his secret private. Like, okay, here's the thing. She has a jeweler over at the house to show her some wedding rings for her to pick out. And Frankenstein sees like a stranger in his house and he's like who the fuck are you get the fuck out of here right now before i murder your face and the jeweler's like well maybe another time he's like get the fuck out of here and then he like turns to margaret he's like i can't believe you would bring a person into our house this this house needs to be closed to reality at all times and he does that and for margaret to be like you know now is the time for me to tell him I know his secret. Yeah, and that I broke into his lab and saw his shit. And then for her to be like, and this now means that we're so much closer rather than like being able to see like the audience can a mile away that like, oh, he's going to kill you tonight, my my dude. Like, yeah. Yeah. So that's really frustrating. Margaret getting killed is kind of like it's a horror movie. So I can't complain about that like too much, but it is like. It sucks. She didn't deserve to die. You know what I mean? Um, Also, I will say that I think the ending is not really worth the color film. No. It's kind of weak. Yeah, that definitely felt more like a gimmick. Um, And and, and like the, the monster has to die because he's killed some people and it's code times, right? But the police are like, come with us, kid. And he's like, no, and just backs into this thing. And after all the like neat gore we've had in the movie and after the fact that you've cut to color, the electrocution's kind of like just indicated through like some sparks and some like animated on flames. And then his body collapses to the floor and it's like there's no burns, there's no wounds, there's no smoke rising up off a charred corpse. He's just the same hunk that he's been since he got the new face. (laughs) Um, And that's like such a you know, after this movie kind of going for it with the gore and stuff to kind of whiff it at the end there <laughs> whiff it to the point where we have to throw in like a flashback to what his gruesome face looked like before so that we can have some sort of kick at the end. It, yeah. The ending's, the ending's kind of weak. Yeah. So, um, this movie is definitely horror. Where would you like to rank it? So I had a real hard time ranking this movie. I ended up with a really huge range because of that. Oh. Um, Because I liked this movie and it's well made for the most part, pretty competent, but it does have these other problems that we've brought up. And so I just wasn't quite sure how to compare it to other movies um, because it was sort of balancing the fact that I like a lot of what this movie does with the fact that like this movie doesn't have a lot of imagination, you know? Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll tell you the range. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I'm hoping that you can help us narrow down. So I decided that, um, this movie was definitely worse than the black sleep at number 53 which is the uh, like universal throwback movie that's got Carradine and Rathbone and 
um, Akeem Tamaroff and Tor Johnson and Bella Lugosi in it. Below that is It Conquered the World, which has Bula and Lee Van Cleef. I was like, maybe this is better than that because Bula is kind of some silly shit, you know? But looking below that, there's a lot of really good movies. There's stuff like Freaks. There's stuff like White Zombie. Uh, lots of good stuff. So I, I was trying to find like, okay, what is this movie definitely better than? And I made my way all the way down to 96, Dead Men Walk, which is the version of Dracula where Dwight Fry is still Renfield, but George Zuko is both Dracula and Van Helsing because they're twin brothers. And I was like, this is better than like a Sam Newfield movie, <laughs> like any Sam Newfield movie. So my floor was 96. So that's 54 to 96, quite a swath. Yes. Okay. Interesting. When I started looking, I was like, okay, do, is this better or worse than I was a teenage werewolf? Mm -hmm. We gave that movie a lot of credit because it's a, a horror movie featuring teens about teens. Yeah. Innovative, um, big impact. Exactly. Uh, it also has these diversions into teen culture and this like party and, and stuff like that. So I was like, well, teen Frankenstein doesn't have those. It doesn't have the innovation of teens, but it at least is far more focused. So I felt that as far as a horror movie goes, it was better. So I actually have 45, I was a teenage werewolf, as my floor. And then I started looking up and I was like, okay, House of Wax at 42, probably a better horror movie, even though it does have these diversions into the gimmicks and like the, the ping pong scene. But El Vampiro from 1957, we just watched this. It's ranked at 41 much more focused, not as innovative as, um, say, Teenage Werewolf, um, because it's kind of drawing off of these, like, universal horror movies, but it knows exactly what it's trying to do. It knows what parts of Dracula to adapt and is explicit about those things. So my range was actually 41 to 45. Okay. Well, between your range and mine, then, is 45 to 54, uh, nine spots. And looking at the movies in between there, does anything stand out to you? We've got stuff like The Abominable Snowman, Dementia, The Maze, Dead of Night, which is always hard to rank against. Yeah. That's hard to answer because I'm thinking of the intent behind creating these movies. Mm -hmm. Man Without a Face. I mean, when you're making a movie, when you're making a culture product, Money is like a goal. Right. I'm not I'm not going to like disqualify anything for that or like poo-poo that or anything. Yeah, movies are expensive to make. You should have some idea of return on investment in some way if you're going to embark on making one. But Man Without a Face felt like it had a vision. Yes. That they were working towards. Um their goals was more than just money. It was to tell a story. Uh, and to tell a very interesting story that no one had really done before with this psychological surrealist approach to it. Yes. Um, whereas I was a teenage where I was a teenage Frankenstein, its main goal was money. Fine. And then the interesting parts about it of the like Shelley themes of bad parents, like I'm not going to say that that wasn't like 
at the forefront because they do show how he, Frankenstein's yeah. a bad dad, but it feels more like, well, that's the text. Yes. You know, it's not subtext. It's not meta text. It's yeah. like, that's the story. So I guess all of this is to say that I would put this below man without a face. Right below Man Without a Face is Dementia, which is another movie that has definitely a vision and is definitely telling a new story in a unique way. Yeah. And then Abominable Snowman... Is the best Yeti movie. And manages its atmosphere and tension way better than this movie. Mm-hmm. So, okay, I'm going to put forward, we put this below The Black Sleep. Okay, do you think that The Black Sleep is better than this? That was my initial feeling... But I, I could put this above the Black Sleep if you think that Black Sleep is worse than this. The weakness of the Black Sleep is that it's got all these cool actors in it who it's reuniting. And then it mostly doesn't do anything with them. Like Carradine comes in in the last five minutes to yell crazy stuff after the like monsters get released. And Bella Lugosi just kind of shuffles around with no lines as like a butler. Um so it's, that's it's, a really good point. It's, it's not fun, using it stuff yeah. in the right way. Whereas I feel like, I mean, with such a low budget, Teenage Frankenstein needs to use every part of it to its most potential. So that's a good point. Um, all right. Yeah, let's put it above um, Black Sleep, but below Snowman. Okay. So then entering the list at the new number 53 is I Was a Teenage Frankenstein from 1957, directed by Herbert L. Strock. I, I want to know if some contemporary reviews for like, well, like Herbert Schlock. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's like low hanging fruit there. Sure. <laughs> if you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the many episodes we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Subscribe to the show using our RSS feed. If you'd like to help the show out, leave us a rating or a review. You can tell a friend about the show through social media, and that helps to grow our audience. And as our audience continues to grow, we ask that if you enjoy what we're doing and have the means to head on over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. And of course, as always in October, we do extra special things on our Patreon. Like right now, our weekly bonus audio is coming from our horror adjacent episodes. Mm -hmm. Sarah's got an audio book adaptation of a horror short story coming up uh and of course we have our horror adjacent episode on the adams family coming up so just a lot of exciting fun stuff coming your way on patreon.com slash scream scene podcast so what are we watching next week ben well next week we're watching blood of dracula from 1957 directed by herbert l strock in it a teen girl becomes a dracula Sure, because Dracula is just vampire, and vampire is just Dracula. I've seen a picture that I think is from this movie of what the teen girl looks like uh, as a vampire, and I think she has like a high-collared cape and a widow's peak hairstyle. So she does literally turn into Dracula. Dracula. Amazing. 
All right. Well, that will be next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.